so that that, that uh, can take us into our our next section here, and this is the section that most people usually get get a little more excited about, um, and and people really seem to enjoy it in our uh, first century mass episode, and that is just to like step back for a moment and just kind of try to envision the atmosphere, right? The sights, the smells, the sounds of a second century Eucharistic gathering of the Christians. So let's start there. Um, when I walk in, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking down, here I am walking down the streets of Rome. I, uh, I pass by the Tabernet. I'm not buying anything today. <laughs> I ascend to the top uh, where there's a dining hall. I enter in. And what am I seeing? I mean, you know, is everybody just kind of like huddled together in a, in a circle? Uh, you know, uh, everybody's kumbaya or, or is there some, some order to even how, where people are placed, you know? Yeah. There, placement. There, yeah. We, we definitely get a sense that there is designated places for folks. Um, uh, so we start to get the, the first explicit kind of references to that in the second century. It may have been there in the first as well. Um, but certainly in the second century, this kind of designation begins. I mean, you'll have, you'll have men and women separated, for example, or, or children and women separated, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also argue that... Sunday the, school, you know? They, they have to... Yeah. <laughs> I would also argue that the presbyter, uh, presbyterium is, is, in, is in view here in some congregations, uh, only because I know in the, in the third century it, it explicitly for sure is in view. Uh, in some churches, and what I mean by that is, if um, uh, there are there are churches that were built in the fourth and fifth centuries that have this in sixth centuries, and to this day that have um, seating in the apse with the with the throne of the bishop in the middle of it, and then right. there's the altar, and then there's the rest of the congregation. Um, you actually do get a sense, a little bit of sense of that in the second century, um, in some areas, mm-hmm. where the the presbyters form a semicircle. Uh, and the bishop sits in um, uh, sits in the middle. Now recall uh, this 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 kind of uh, sounds like the stibadium that we talked about in our first century episode. That kind of mm-hmm. semicircular C shaped um, table. You can imagine, and we did right. in the first century, the presbyters and the leading presbyter, the bishop. Um, perhaps sitting around that table where everybody else overflowed into the dining hall, into the atrium kind of thing. Well, mm-hmm. that structure perhaps then moves uh, into these other spaces as well. That kept spaces, that kind yeah. of formation. Yeah, um, You get a sense of that, for example, go look, uh, uh, maybe we can read Ignatius of Antioch, uh, his letter to the Magnesians, um, where he, he speaks of, perhaps perhaps references this kind of setup. Yeah, yeah, let me uh, pull it up. So this is, yeah, a letter to the Magnesians, chapter 13. He says, Study, therefore, to be established in the doctrines of the Lord and the apostles, that so all things whatsoever you do may prosper both in the flesh and spirit, in faith and love, in the Son and in the Father and in the Spirit, in the beginning and the end, with your most admirable bishop, and the well-compacted spiritual laurel of your presbytery, and the deacons who are according to God. And then he goes on to say, be subject to the bishop as to one other Jesus yeah. Christ, right? So, but, but he mentions this laurel shape. The well-compacted <laughs> laurel, laurel shape, the laurel that goes around you know, your mm-hmm. head, basically around the, the, the presbyters are gathered that way around the bishop, basically mm-hmm. perhaps in the, in the congregations. There. So yeah. there's a there's and there's, a, nice there's a dual meaning. There's a dual meaning there is what we're saying, right? Because yeah. he, he's also just like you know creating the image of a crown around Jesus Christ, right? But, um, but is there an echo there of what's happening also in their liturgical gatherings? Well, that's why that's why I say sense. because since we know later practice that in many churches this is already is this this is happening. Perhaps the roots of it are, are already well, here. And plus, uh, we know the early practice of the, uh, of the stibadium and how that was shaped, yeah. right? So right. it's like when you when you have A and C, you kind of have to fill it with yeah. B. Um, yeah. But there's there's more evidence of it too, because um, even in and we brought this up uh, past episode, um, the Gospel of um, of Judas. Now, the Gospel of Judas um, is a second century text, a Gnostic text, but it's a Gnostic text making fun of the proto orthodox, right? Uh, in the in the person in the persons of the apostles. And in the in the text, it 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 shows the apostles um, gathered in a semicircle um, 
around the altar, mm-hmm. and they're referred to as priests. So again, this kind of semicircular formation around the altar. And in the text, it says that they're both seated in that formation, and then also standing and praying in that formation um, as well as the as the twelve apostles. Right. And just a word here, we're gonna we're gonna get into this more in the. Uh, well, actually, we'll talk about it a lot when we talk about the Gnostics, um, and then we'll we'll talk about it again in the early third century, most likely. But um, not all Episcopal chairs are made alike, right? <laughs> are equal. I mean, you have uh, in apostolic churches, like churches where the apostles actually uh, established a community, um, you have the apostles' actual teaching chairs. Uh, the mm-hmm. thronon, or in Latin, the cathedra, uh, which yeah. is where we get the modern word, you know, for cathedral. That's where the bishop's chair is, right? Um, but it, it's 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 not just um, some kind of like a second century um, anachronism, right? They're, they're not like importing back onto the first century, like, oh yeah, we have these thrones that we set on. That's not what's going on. They're, they're actually talking about the teaching chair because in the ancient world, of course, sitting down was the posture of teaching. This is why even mm-hmm. in the Gospels, you have Jesus. It's, he sat down and then everyone listened, right? And he gave his sermon on the mount. Sitting down was the proper posture of teaching, which is why they would give these speeches or these homilies, these early homilies, from the chair. Um, and and in these these communities, like in Rome, they have Peter's throne on. They have his cathedra. And that is where... His successors are continuing uh, to to teach, and it's the same for all the other churches. Um, right. So, you, you, in certain areas, you would have the actual chair of the apostles themselves, or the companions of the apostles, are very apostolic men. Their chairs would be preserved and 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 sat in for these types of homilies. Right. Yeah, and 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 in fact, one of the earliest feasts of the Roman Church is the feast of the chair of Saint Peter. The chair. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is actually one of the earliest feast days. That's there. Um, do we have a prescription against heretics uh, up? Let's read, um, let's read Tertullian, uh, prescription against the heretics. Um, this text is probably dated to 197, so we're within uh, the second century, the, the border. But in, it's in chapter 36 where Tertullian speaks of the chairs that are in place. In the congregations. Yeah. So Tertullian, he, he writes, Come now, you who would indulge a better curiosity, if you would apply it to the business of your salvation, run over the apostolic churches, in which the very thrones, chairs, cathedra, of the apostles are still preeminent in their places, in which their own authentic writings are read, uttering the voice and representing the face of each of them severally. Achaia is very near to you, in which you find Corinth. Since you are not far from Macedonia, you have Philippi, and there too you have the Thessalonians. Since you are able to cross to Asia, you get Ephesus. Since, moreover, you are close upon Italy, you have Rome, from which there comes even into our own hands the very authority of apostles themselves. How happy is its church, on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's, and where Paul wins his crown in a death like John's, where the Apostle John was first plunged unhurt into boiling oil and thence remitted into his island exile. See what she has learned, what taught, what fellowship she has had, even with our churches of Africa. So you can see there, he's, what he's going astounding. over... I mean, it's just, can I just, it's just an astounding know. text. Um, in 197... I, there's so much to unpack. There. Go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. I was yeah. No, I, I was just no. I was just gonna say that like what you have here though um, is an early kernel of the idea of the pentarchy. Um, you, you, yeah. you have this idea that you have these apostolic churches where the chairs of the apostles were preserved intentionally um, to show alternative schools and rival sects that are starting to crop up to show them that like, dude, we are clearly from Peter. Or we are clearly from John or we're clearly from Philip or whoever it is, because this is his chair. We still have his teaching throne on from which mm-hmm. our own presbyters continue to teach from. Um, but you also have this idea that the surrounding smaller communities 
receive their apostolic authority from their proximity to that church. So right. it, it's this is very early that they're saying. Yeah, he's this. telling he's telling he's telling the heretics basically basically climb the mountain of apostolic churches. So go visit this one, you'll see. Go visit this one, and you're, and as you get higher and higher, you'll finally come to Rome. Mm-hmm. The church, the church not of an apostle, but the church of the apostles, Peter mm-hmm. and Paul. And I love that part where he says we're still teaching from these chairs. The, the practice, <laughs> the practice of sitting and, and teaching. The bishop teaches from the chair, right? Um, we we see that when a bishop comes to visit and he's going to teach. Oftentimes he'll sit in a chair and give instruction. Um, that was that was a practice of the early church. We know uh, that's how Saint Augustine would deliver his sermons would be from the chair. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's 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 great that it's there. And then it also talks about Saint John, the early tradition. That's how early this tradition is, of Saint John being boiled in Rome, but then being mm-hmm. sent back to Patmos, to Ephesus and Patmos, um, to receive the revelation. Um, so all these early traditions, the idea of the chair is there, uh, and the idea of the highest of the apostolic churches is there, all in the mm-hmm. late second century. So certainly you have designated areas in these churches uh, for the teacher, for the president, for the bishop. Um, and, and don't, so don't think that that didn't exist. I mean, you know, maybe we've mentioned it before, but going back even to Jesus, you know, and he's speaking about they, they claim to have the chair of Moses. Right. These are actual chairs. These are actual right. thrones, stone thrones built into synagogues. Uh, right. And so the Christians have continued that practice. And if the Jews were doing it in the first century, of course the apostles were also practicing it. If I'm going to teach, I'm going to sit in the teaching chair. And so these churches have preserved those thrones. Yeah, that's great. Um, now, 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 don't also don't forget, obviously there's going to be instruction, there's going to be um, sermons or, or homilies. Um, and that, there's something to mark out, again, as a major trend in the second century, and that is the idea, we take it for granted, the idea that a sermon or a homily is tied to a reading. A lot of times, the instruction in, in the symposium time, you know, of course, the, those who would speak would prepare ahead of time, but... Mm-hmm. They, they, they were mostly just um, uh, extempore kind of instruction. Mm-hmm. Because remember what St. Paul says. He says, each one of you has a, has a word, a revelation, a tongue. You know, so it's, it's almost ad hoc sometimes. The leader is either a prophet or, or a presbyter or you know, one of the um, deacons, perhaps. They're kind of speaking off the cuff a little bit uh, in the symposium time. Um, of course, there were... There was usually some set readings and things, but we have instances of sermons not being tied to any readings is the point. Uh, so the idea that there would be a reading and then the sermon is on that exact reading is a theme that, again, bubbles up uh, for us explicitly in the second century um, in St. In in Saint Justin Martyr, uh, for example, where he says that we would then there's a commentary on the things that were said, right? The imitation of these good things that were said. Yeah. Yeah, um, and 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 it, that also highlights the not only the the presbyterate or episcopate making commentary on those things, but actually uh, there's an office that gets overshadowed here. But in the second century, there's a prominent office office of the didaskalos and the the teacher, um, yeah. which very likely uh, I would argue that Tertullian was in Carthage. He wasn't a presbyter, but he was yeah. certainly a didaskalos. Um, and and that was that was actually the primary teaching function, whereas presbyter. Uh, in many places, is sort of more committed to the prayers, right? It is like the man who prays well and who has this eldership in a sense of like being uh, the the old man among us and these kinds of things. But but the teacher was really where like the commentary comes comes in mm-hmm. uh, on the mm-hmm. scriptures. Yeah, and um, and it's it's significant actually that the Christians uh, latch on to the word homilia, homily, um, <clears throat> because they could have chosen a lot of other different words. For their 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 instruction time, um, homily is like um, in in Greek it can be uh, almost like we would say okay I'm here's the difference okay if I said to you Steve I'm going to a lecture or if I said to you I'm going to a talk mm-hmm. there's a slight difference between the two a lecture is like okay formal somebody's up there and they're going to give me all the information I need uh, homily has a little more of an intimacy to it. You know, it, it is something that is is more appropriate for the supper, 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and if I said to you, I'm going to a, uh, a talk, okay, um, you, would, you, would, you would then kind of say, well, to me that implies there might be some give and take, some, some question right. and answer, right? There's a talk, there's question and answer, there, it's kind of, um, uh, there's conversation. Basically. Collaborative, yeah. It's collaborative, yeah. And so that the Christians are latching onto that, that term shows the kind of intimacy that was there in the early instruction, uh, the symposium form of, of, these, of these sermons, in that it could be, okay, the, the presbyter is going to say something, but the deacon is also going to comment on it, a prophet's going to speak up. Um, that was all part of, uh, of the instruction going on in the, in, the early, uh, in the early church, the first century for sure, and then into the, into the second. But again, the theme is that now one person is giving the teaching, and they're giving the teaching on the readings. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Um, now, of course, at this time, too, you, you're, you're seeing very clearly that the properly constituted Eucharist is the one where the bishop presbyter presides with his presbyterate in, in council, right? Mm-hmm. You see that yep. as early, I mean, my goodness, as early as the Didache, right? Chapter 15. Yeah, the Didache, um, uh, in, like, um, not explicit, but kind of implicitly mm-hmm. refers to the to the bishop as the high priest of the of the congregation. Right. Um, uh, Ignatius, in his letter to the Smyrnans, Ignatius, in his letters to the Philadelphians, is speaking about it's you can't have a proper Eucharist without the bishop, or yeah. someone whom the bishop deems to celebrate that Eucharist. So a mm-hmm. presbyter, uh, another leader of, of of the church. So it's coming into view now, uh, uh, explicitly in the second century. That it's the mm-hmm. bishop and it's the presbyters who, in fact, do preside over the Eucharist. Remember, in the first century, you can't tell because it just doesn't say it. It, it may have been the fact, and we believe it is the fact, but it didn't doesn't say it. Uh, presbyters are really given the role in the New Testament as rulers and teachers and those those um, uh, functions. But now, in the second century, we're, we're finally explicitly hearing that no, it's the bishops and the presbyters who preside at, at Eucharist. Right. Um, which of course opens up a question of well then what about the deacon you know what is what is the role of the deacon at this point we we in our in our original episodes uh, on Ignatius we mentioned how the deacon is well, even the word deacon is kind of like a very nebulous term when you're looking at the late second century early the late first century early second century um, yeah. and and really uh, a lot of times what's in view is an emissary of the, of the episcopos like carrying messages from churches to churches mm-hmm. sort of like this glue that holds all these right hand together across the empire um, yeah, a right hand kind of guy to the bishop but now i think we're starting to really see a specifically liturgical role for for this office is that right yeah well we read it in justin that it's in it's in fact the deacons who are the ones who distribute um the eucharist and they're also the ones that take the eucharist to people who couldn't be there so they take right. the leftovers from the consecrated bread and wine, the mixed cup, and they take it to the homes of the folks who couldn't, couldn't be there. So the deacons are now uh, clearly in view as having a liturgical function, a liturgical role, um, and not just the, the role of, of, of herald or emissary, uh, but now very much a part of the Eucharist itself. Right, right. So you can look um, at uh, Ignatius um, Trallian's chapter 2, um, but then certainly Justin's apology, which we read. Yeah, because Ignatius in Trillians too, he says it is fitting also that the deacons, as being ministers of the mysteries of Jesus mysteries. Christ, shouldn't yeah. yes, should in every respect be pleasing to all, for then they are not ministers of meat and drink, but servants of the Church of God. Yeah. Um, so yeah, showing that they have a specific ministry within the uh, the meal context, within the meal, within the Eucharistic meal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so if I was to walk in, like we said, we see like kind of the clergy, we see all these uh, proper sep- separations or dis- distinctions being made uh, among the community. You still do have like the the semicircular form of the clergy up front. Um, in some places, hear- yeah. Yeah, but, but what are we hearing, right? Um, what does this sound like in a way? Like is there any, are there any echoes in the, source, uh, in the sources of the second century they give us an indication as to what we would be hearing as we walked into a Christian gathering. Yeah, so we used 
uh, a second century source to explain what we'd be hearing in first century. So the Odes of Solomon uh, basically are the earliest Christian hymn book, if you will, um, a bunch of odes, a bunch of psalms that were written in the second century, uh, maybe at the turn of the century, first to second century, um, that kind of show us the content of Christian um, verse, Christian Christian singing. But you also have um, the scriptures being sung. You have the psalms being sung. We hear um, from a number of sources in the second century that the psalms of David are being used in worship. Uh, again, the apocryphal acts of, of Paul uh, mention that the psalms of David are being sung in worship. Um, and then uh, Tertullian mentions the psalms. Uh, Clement, Clement of Alexandria mentions the psalms. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also uh, be prepared to hear uh, new compositions, uh, original compositions by Christians themselves, uh, the singing of, of, of those types of, um, of hymns that are being written at the time as well. Right, exactly. And it's not just, uh, you know, it, it's not just that they're, they're like reciting the Psalms, right? They're, they're, they're singing this. This is, this is chanting that yeah, is going on. They're, they're chanting it. Yeah, it's a good point because, uh, they're, they're chanting them. And, and also, um, we have examples of responsory psalms happening. So mm-hmm. one side says this, the other side says this, um, from the late 3rd and 4th centuries, but they probably can sneak back into the 2nd, because again, remember the ever-important um, uh, letter of Pliny. He says that the, the Christians, when they gathered, would sing alternatively, alternatively to Christ as to a god. Right. So... One side, antiphonally, basically. This side sings something, this side responds. So there's antiphonal singing going on. Um, the Odes of Solomon, uh, they, they typically end with an Alleluia, which, mm-hmm. which kind of suggests that, okay, that somebody's singing the, the Ode, and at the end, people are responding, Alleluia, Alleluia. Um, so there's this tit-for-tat that's going on uh, in the congregations um, as well, not just, not just everybody singing congregationally, but uh, there's, there also seems to be um, an, antiphonal singing. And then what I would say is uh, designated singers, designated choirs in, um, in the congregation um, in, in, as well in the second century. And we definitely hear that from um, Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria tells us that there, um, in the congregation he knows of, so he's in Egypt, that there were um, the young women, perhaps the virgins, who were doing the singing, who were, who were singing the Word of God to the people in the congregation right. there. Right. Um, we also have, um, because the question is, is this, you know, is this without music? Is it accompanied by something? But we do have echoes, even in the sources, of the kitara being used. It's an ancient instrument. Right, yeah. it's a stringed instrument. It's where we actually get the word guitar. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, it's it's, it's, it's basically Latin. Latin. Yeah, but it's basically the more formal uh, form of the lyre. So the lyre was something that was typically used as an educational tool. So when you were they were doing philosophy, right, and they're talking about music, or if they're actually doing musical instruction, trying to teach somebody to play an instrument, uh, the common thing to use would be the lyre. Well, the kitara was sort of the the thing you use at formal events, formal gatherings, um, religious gatherings, but also just, you know, the games. Uh, if there was ever a time where music was to be a centerpiece uh, and there was actually to be an audience to listen um, attentively, it was the guitar that was used. Mm-hmm. So we do have echoes of that being used, not only in the odes, like you mentioned, odes 14.8 and 26.3, but even in, in the uh, corpus of Clement of Alexandria, right? Yeah, the, the Protrepticus, uh, chapter 12, the same spot where he's talking about the, the young women or the women um, singing and in, in basically in choir, he also speaks of the um, uh, cithara being uh, played. Uh, so the cithara is like a, almost like a handheld harp, basically, um, mm-hmm. that's being played along, alongside the singing that's going on in the congregation. So there is some instrumentation. I will say, however, that... Clement of Alexandria also stresses that instrumentation in worship should be limited. Right. It shouldn't be too excessive, and it <laughs> yeah. and it should be only an accompaniment accompaniment to 
the voices, because of course mm-hmm. the voice is the truest instrument to be singing, uh, to to be making um, music to God, to God, basically. So yeah, and um, you'll see what, that as a which, theme, like way in later centuries too. Even yeah. when it comes down to like the Reformation era, well, pre-Reformation era, when they're talking, like the church is talking about the organ, um, yeah. where it's like they they're picking instruments that are, and they're approving of certain instruments and disapproving of others based on how much proximity those instruments have to mimicking the human voice. Yeah. Um, because the whole goal here is not to like have this like big musical bash, but uh, especially at this time, because that's what the Romans were doing. Like that's what, that's what Gentiles were doing in their symposium times. There was drunkenness, carousing, there was wild music and this kind of stuff, but like a Bacchian, you know, uh, mess. Yeah. But the Christians are saying, are, are very intent on making sure that that is not what is going to happen in their gathering. It's reasonable worship. Yeah, it's, it's worship rational. of the mind. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's certainly the case. And and um, so yeah, the the idea of uh, limited instrumentation is is certainly there um, in Clement Alexandrian and, and other fathers. Um, you you do want the the instrument to just be that accompaniment to the to the to the voices. Right. So um, there's also a, a, an instance of. Clement writing his own hymn, right? There, there's like a an actual hymn of his that we, we a very, have. very, very long hymn of his. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> very long hymn of his. Well, um, well, let's maybe let's maybe take a section of his okay. hymn and and yeah. and read it. And I also want people to be able to hear a little bit of what the kitara would sound like, you know, and maybe a little bit of singing. What what that would sound like as you're sort of listening. I'm not. To. I'm not going to sing for you. Please sing for us, Dan. No. Chant. I'll read it yeah. in second century fashion. Yeah. So uh, this this hymn is uh, was written by Clement of Alexandria. He it's called the uh, it's it's pretty famous. It's called the Bridal of Untamed Colts, and that's that's the opening line. So it goes this this way: Bridal of untamed colts, wing of unwandering birds, sure helm of babes, shepherd of royal lambs, assemble thy simple children to praise holily, to him guilelessly, with innocent mouths, Christ the guide of children. O King of saints, all subduing word of the Most High Father, Prince of wisdom, support of sorrows, that rejoicest in the ages, Jesus, Savior of the human race, shepherd, husbandman, helm, bridle, heavenly wing, of all the white flock, Father of men who are saved, catching the chaste fishes with sweet life from the hateful wave of the sea of vices. Lead, O shepherd of reasoning sheep, lead harmless children, O holy king. That's great. That's powerful. It's it's just crazy that we even <laughs> that we even have sources like that. I mean, yeah. That's why we love what we do. Um Cool. So we hear a little bit about um, maybe what things sounded like. Uh, we kind of are getting visuals for what things might have looked like. I do want to take a quick uh, quick moment here to talk about, um, because we Jesus. see it now. Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we see it now for the, for the first time in the, the second century pretty explicitly, and that is this um, you know, reference to special clothing being worn. Yeah, um, so you had designated designated um, spots for people to sit, special uh, honorable guests, <laughs> the bishops and presbyters. Yeah, I want to take people back to the world of late late antiquity. I, I just because I feel like um, we have this notion in our minds that religious clothing is something that comes, you know way later and it's 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 this this very elitist and bizarre thing but that see that's all carryovers of the enlightenment um and what's funny is that if you look in modern society we have all kinds of designated uniforms <laughs> across society for all sorts of things i mean police officers have the uniform doctors have a lab coat you know um you have judges wear a gown. I mean, judges walk into a court. Like, why are they wearing a gown, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you wanted to get really cheeky about it, you're like, why are they doing that? You know, um, the president of the United States, he's going to wear a suit. He's got a red tie or a blue tie. Pick one. You know, it's <laughs> every, everybody has 
uh, uniforms, you know, that they wore by, by which they are identified. Um, except in our society when it comes to religion. That's when people get like, oh, wait a second here, you know. Yeah. Um, but when you're, if we can just throw all of that out for a second and, and get back into the realm of late antiquity, the question is not who in society is wearing particular clothing or special clothing. It, it, the question is rather who didn't. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. your clothing in this system, in this cultural system, your clothing said a lot about your station, who you were, what you did, who you belonged to in some cases uh, when it came to the slaves. But yeah, slaves had, had a very particular type of clothing that they wore. You were expected as a Roman citizen when you showed up at certain places that you were going to be wearing a toga. Uh, if you were a philosopher, you were going to be wearing the himation. And especially if you were if you were a very serious philosopher, you you would not wear like a tunic underneath it. It would just be you're completely mm-hmm. you know bare chested, and you'd have it thrown around you. So uh, going as far back, and, and by the way, this isn't just like a, a Greek or a Roman thing. This is a Hebrew thing. I mean, even even as early as as the time of Christ, you have uh, a garment called the talith, and this was a garment that designated designated that you were a teacher of the law. You were a rabbi, mm-hmm. um, and it is it is literally a a photocopy <laughs> of the Greek himation, which was used for philosophers. So it, it's literally almost a facsimile of, uh, of it. So Christ, if you notice in the Gospels, it's curious because he shows up in places and people automatically are calling him rabbi. Mm-hmm. You know, and he doesn't introduce me. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm a teacher <laughs> here to teach you the law. You know, you don't get this in the Gospels where people go out and they see John the Baptist and say rabbi. They don't call John the Baptist rabbi. They don't do that for a reason because he's not dressed as one. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's it's very, very likely, highly likely that Jesus uh, wore the talith. He presented himself as a teacher of the law, as a rabbi, um, which is why he would even enter into the synagogues and be able to to speak as a rabbi and they would, they call him rabbi in the synagogue, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so what we see when we move into the second century is that the Christians are wearing the himation, like the Christian, uh, presbyters are wearing a garment that shows people that they are the teachers. They are the ones who teach. Uh, and they, they are in some cases the philosopher. Like when you look at, uh, Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr is, is we're told by Eusebius, um, was in the habit of wearing the himation with no, with no clothing underneath, right? So he's presenting himself specifically as, I am a philosopher, and people mm. knew that. And so then they say, okay, so what's your teaching, right? Mm. Um, the, the, the Christian presbyters are wearing you know, the, tunic, the tunic, and then they have the himation wrapped around, which says, I'm a teacher. Um, I'm here to teach divine mysteries. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you come to Tertullian, I mean, Tertullian, Tertullian, of course, only he would spend time, uh, talking about <laughs> the importance of, of, <laughs> of wearing of the pallium. <laughs> so the, the Roman equivalent, so you have the, the, the Hebrew telit, you have the Greek himatium. When, when you come to, um, the Romans, their Latin word for this was the pallium. All right. Um, now Romans didn't typically wear that. They wore the toga. The toga was their pride, and really, it's just it's a it's a very slight difference of shape. Um, but if you were like a senator or whoever, right, and you're going to a formal event, if you were going to a race uh, or to some kind of a spectacle, you were expected that you were going to be wearing the toga, and it was a very uncomfortable garment to wear. Okay, so people were wearing it for a very specific reason to designate who they were. Well, it became by the time of Tertullian fashionable for people <laughs> for people to start like wearing the toga. Mm-hmm. And Tertullian takes issue with it, <laughs> of course, and and he points and he out has to write a whole that, treatise about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but he points out why mm. why Christians will not do this, will not wear the toga, we will continue to wear the pallium or the himation in the Greek. They're wearing a Greek vestment. In fact, so mm. much so that that at the at the very end of his his writing, he says. And uh, he after so this is after he recounts a bunch of pagan heroes who were toga wearers, <laughs> okay. Mm. And he talks about all their vices. And he says, 
And mind you, these were merely a few toga wearers out of many, the sort of men you will not easily find with the pallium. These then surely will be the outrage of in the maxim from toga to pallium. But these are words of the pallium. I will go further and also grant it, the, the pallium, communication with that divine sect and discipline. Rejoice, pallium, and exult. A better philosophy has deigned you worthy from the moment that it is the Christian whom you started to dress. Nice. <laughs> so you can see that, okay, if, if I was walking into a Christian gathering, I would know who the presbyter was. You would know who the presbyters were. They were specially designated uh, by wearing the himation. And you would know, by the way, who the deacons were. Because the deacons would not be wearing it, and they would be wearing the tunica. Because mm -hmm. they were ready for service. They would have been girded, ready mm -hmm. to serve. Right? Which is why Ignatius is saying, they don't merely serve tables. Don't, don't get the wrong idea here. Just because right. they're dressed like common servants. But they are servants of the mysteries of, of God. Mm -hmm. Okay? So... You're already seeing the idea of vest, of vestment, or I don't want to say vestments, you know, but vesture. You know, um, people are dressed in certain ways to communicate what they do within the community and what their right. function was, and what mm -hmm. their honor was, and what their dignity was. Uh, and apart from that, we also have reference to baptismal garments at this stage. So we have people who are being dressed in white after they are baptized. Again, this yeah. symbolic vesture. Well, so you have that all the way from the New Testament. I mean, Revelation speaks of the white garment, uh, yeah. allusion to it. Um, I think the Odes of Solomon allude to it. Um, the really explicit references come from the third century church orders, the white garment being given to the baptized. Uh, but the hymn I just read references it. Clement right. of Alexandria's hymn, um, where he says, uh, hem, uh, Helm, bridal, heavenly wing of all the white flock. So he's playing on, okay, the white flock of doves, but it's because the Christians are dressed in white when they come up out of the waters of baptism. Right. Um, and we know also that even, even stretching back into, again, the Hebrew roots of all of this, um, not only in the official temple cult that, you know, the, the vesture of priests was the white garment, but even in the Essenes, this was not uncommon. This was normal, right? They, they wore white garments in their worship. So vestment as an idea, as a, as a religious, uh, in religious use in the ancient world, is not elitist or weird or it, it's normal. It, it's completely mm -hmm. normal. So we mm -hmm. shouldn't be surprised that by the time you move into like third, fourth, and fifth centuries, um, that these things start to take on kind of a life of their own, right? And and, mm -hmm. and and even start to get beautified. People are now making vestments for the presbyters and. And and now things become beautiful and creative, right? It, it's it's a mm -hmm. natural natural progression of ancient uh, religion, um, yeah. and I would say even a Hebrew religion. It's it's nothing out of the ordinary, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I hope that this is starting to put a little bit of meat to the bone of what we started with, because where we started was this sort of cursory reading of Justin Martyr's description of the Christian gathering. But now you're starting to kind of see that like there's a lot going on here. And you have to remember, of course, everything that we've talked about before, that what Christians actually think of their gathering. Justin Martyr is writing about their gathering to a pagan world that doesn't accept them, and so he has to kind of put it in palatable terms. But we know mm -hmm. that this is a very cultic community. They understand that they're gathering together for sacrifice. They're doing temple service when they get together. Yep, yep. Well, and to that, to that point, that's the other... That's the other thing that you'd be, I guess, hearing in the congregation is the sacrificial language of of the Christians as well. That you know um, that the Christians are bringing their offering, uh, the offering referring to the Eucharist itself, not just to to prayer. You know, there's this um, there's certainly a, a a theme in early Christian theology about the what we would call the spiritualization of the cult that the only true sacrifices of God are a contrite heart, or the, the only true sacrifices of God are the lips that give him praise, or the mm -hmm. lips that, that give him thanksgiving. Um, that, that theme of the spiritual sacrifice runs all the way through, from St. Paul all the way to modern Catholic theology. Mm -hmm. But what the second century fathers also make clear to us, very clear, very explicit, is that there is also a physical offering. There is also a physical sacrifice that, in fact, replaces the sacrifices of the ancient cult. 
of of the cult of of the Jews, basically, and and you'll see that um, uh, explicitly again in Saint Justin Martyr, um, in his dialogue with Trifo. Dialogue with Trifo is is Justin and his dialogue with uh, with a Jew, and uh, in a number of places in that work, uh, chapter forty one is it forty one, mm-hmm. chapter forty one I think. Um, uh, he is arguing with Trifo, and he recalls the prophecy of Malachi, Malachi 1.10, where it prophesies of a future pure sacrifice that's going to uh, be given by all the nations. And St. Justin talks about uh, Malachi as um, the fulfillment of Malachi being all the prayers of the church, but not just the prayers of the church, but he says also the offering of the bread and wine, the offering of, of the Eucharist um, as well. So it, it is a cultic atmosphere. It's a, it's, a, it's a sacrificial atmosphere. And one of the main themes of the second century would be that explicit um, reference and development of the cult in seeing um, not just the Eucharist uh, as a full banquet, but literally the Eucharist as the elements of bread and wine. Because mm-hmm. for the first time in the second century, fathers like St. Irenaeus of Lyon are referring to the elements of bread and wine as the Eucharist. Right. <clears throat> yeah. And that's, that, that is a, that is a, a development, a clear development that's happening because pri- prior to this, we we're talking about like kind of the Eucharist as, as this event, which is one big yeah. sacrifice, you yeah. know, an offering to God. But now we're actually seeing this, this emphasis on, just, but you know what? This is the thing. I don't want people to think that like, oh, so here we go. Like, here's where the church starts to go off track with the Eucharist or something. You know, like, like say from a Protestant perspective or something that they're focusing to. Because this still also goes back to what Saint Paul insists on. You know, when he describes like the bread which we break, the cup. Right. <laughs> like he clearly has this distinction. Uh, between everything else that they're eating and these two sp- particular things. But the, the, the second century is going to kind of have to double down on that because the meal context is becoming less and less convenient and practical. So what's going to survive? Well, obviously the two pivotal <laughs> you know, elements of that feast. You know? Yeah, and, and, that's why, um, and that's why you have a number of instances throughout the second century, a number of examples of the, what we would call the occasional Eucharist. Um, Eucharist that just happens spontaneously, mm-hmm. where you know uh, Christians are gathering somewhere and they want to celebrate the Eucharist. Um, the one of the um, good examples, um, and Protestants might hate this, is um, the gathering at the tombs of the martyrs or the gathering at the tombs of the saints and celebrating a Eucharist at at the tomb. Right. Um, we know that early Christians, based on archaeology, early Christians would gather for. Uh, banquets, funerary banquets, and Eucharists in the catacombs or at tombs. Um, even uh, some of the famous um, sites in Rome, where um, there's traditions that Saint Paul's uh, bones were, there are you know holes in the in the ground to where they would share a banquet, you know, a meal with 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 the the dead saint. Um, uh, but anyway, Eucharists. We have examples of Eucharists being held. In, in tombs and sepulchers in in um, in the second century as well a great example being from the uh, from the Acts of John so another apocryphal work um, right. mid to late late second century um, but I think I want to read I want to read from from there because it will it'll give us a sense of um, what Eucharistic prayers sounded like in the second century we already read the Didache in previous episodes, and we, we understood what they sounded like then. Um, but I want to read this one, and then we can, and then we can comment on it. So this sure. is from the, the Acts of John. <clears throat> so the story begins with, with the Apostle John going to, um, to a tomb, a sepulcher, with the brethren at, uh, at dawn to celebrate the Eucharist. Um, and it continues, says, And having thus said... Uh, John prayed and took bread and bare it into the sepulcher to break it and said, We glorify thy name, which converteth us from error and ruthless deceit. We glorify thee who hast shown before our eyes that which we have seen. We bear witness to thy loving kindness, which appeareth in diverse ways. We praise thy merciful name, O Lord. 
we thank thee, who hast convicted them that are convicted of thee. We give thanks to thee, O Lord Jesus Christ, that we are persuaded of thy grace, which is unchanging. We give thanks to thee, who hast need of our nature, that should be saved. We give thanks to thee that hast given us this sure faith, for thou art God alone, both now and ever. We thy servants give thee thanks, O Holy One, who are assembled with good intent and are gathered out of the world and risen from the dead. And having so prayed and given glory to God, he went out of the sepulcher after imparting unto all the brethren of the Eucharist of the Lord. So <clears throat> it's a great, it's a, obviously a very beautiful prayer. Um, the concentration here is, of course, on Thanksgiving, because that's what Eucharist means, uh, Thanksgiving. So the early Eucharist, Eucharistic prayers were prayers of Thanksgiving. We saw that in the Didache, thanking God um, in Jesus Christ for life and knowledge, for example, in the Didache. Here it's yeah. thanking God for a lot of things, including the um, incarnation of Jesus Christ, um, and then thanking Jesus Christ himself uh, directly in this mm -hmm. Eucharistic prayer. Now, Very a lot of times, a lot of times, yeah, um, a lot of times some scholars would look at this and say, yeah, see, the passion of Christ and the, the, the connection between the Eucharist and Jesus' death or crucifixion is not yet in view. That's a right. later concept that comes into view. The only problem with that way of thinking is that we have Justin Martyr, who shows us that he too says that there are the, the prayers that they say over the Eucharist are, first off, um, extempore, usually. So it's, it's on the presbyter to kind of come up with, with those prayers, probably patterned prayers. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, Justin then goes on to explain the kind of Passover context, um, the sacrificial context of the Eucharist, the body and blood, the flesh, actually says the flesh and blood of yeah. Jesus is, are, are the Eucharistic elements. So that shows that the theology is there. Just because mm -hmm. the words of institution, for example, aren't in some of these Eucharistic prayers, um, doesn't mean that the, the idea of the cross and Calvary and the sacrifice of the cross aren't there. Um, so, yes, the words of institution are not yet in view in the prayers that we have from the second century, Eucharistic prayers um, that we have. It will be in view in the third century. By the third mm -hmm. century, the church orders, you'll see, are including the words of institution in, in the prayers. Right. But at this early stage, <clears throat> you do have these wonderful Thanksgiving prayers that are being said. But don't let, don't let people trick you into thinking that the, they don't understand the context of those prayers. And the context is, of course, the sacrifice that, that Christ's giving of his flesh and his blood. Well, yeah, and, and it, I mean, this is just like my own opinion, but I, I would, from, just from what I've read and what I've known throughout the years of, of reading the Fathers, um, especially in this early period, is that when they're getting together and they're offering these Thanksgiving prayers over the Eucharist, like you said, the assumption, the background is everything that Jesus already did. Um, so like for us, we repeat the words of Christ. Like we repeat the words of institution as part of our ritual. But for mm -hmm. these people, the words have been spoken and now they're giving thanks. You see, like the posture is different. It's like the words of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood, literally provide the entire backdrop to their personal prayers of thanksgiving mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. God. So that it is the flesh of the Lord and that it is his blood is not even is not even in question. And its connection to Christ's sacrifice, his incarnation, his ascension, his glorification, all of that is just wrapped up into it already. And they're that's what they're giving thanks for. Right. It's already over assumed. the elements. Yeah, yeah. It's so assumed. Whereas as you move as you move through the centuries, it becomes uh for whatever reason, it just becomes more normal for them to repeat the 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 um, the event, I guess, to yeah. reenact the event. Um, yeah, but but all of this to say that what what we're seeing is this emphasis on the elements um, again, and, and in, in this case, I mean, from what you read, I didn't even hear anything about wine. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so. So oftentimes um, you'll, you have um, bread-only Eucharist happening um, in, the, in the second century. I mean, that's, 
pretty uh, pretty common, uh, especially in some of the apocryphal works um, that are there. Uh, but so, so in other words, the, the Catholics would like that because we say that right. the whole Christ is contained in either in either the bread or the wine. Right. Um, that's kind of our our um, our theology anyway. And so, these bread only Eucharists, we have no, we take no issue with that. Um, we do take issue, however, with other Eucharists that are happening in the second century. Um, there are a number of Christians who, for whatever reason, um, use water in their Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So they'll do bread and bread and water. Um, sometimes scholars will say, well, that's for practical purposes. They couldn't get the wine or couldn't afford wine, so they use water. Others say um, it's based on theology that, no, there are Christians who believe that it should be water because, right, doesn't St. Paul say that water came from the rock and the rock was Christ? And that's our spiritual drink that we should be drinking. Um, and then, of course, all of the kind of water sayings in the Gospel of John. So water had a sacredness to it as well. And so you do have a number of Christian groups, uh, even within the Proto-Orthodox congregations, who are um, celebrating bread and water Eucharists. But the thing to point out is that our great writers of the Proto-Orthodox tradition are making sure that they say that, no, it's bread and the mixed cup. Right. So you saw from Justin Martyr, he said, no, we, we celebrate with bread and the mixed cup. You'll see the same thing in St. Irenaeus of Lyon. It's the mixed cup. It's, it's wine and water mixed together. Those three must, must be there, which is the practice all the way down through the ages to present day. In, 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 obviously, in the Roman Catholic Church, we have water and wine, and both are mixed together into the, into the cup. St. Cyprian will give a theological explanation for why that is. Um, but the point here in the second century is to say that the great writers of the Proto-Orthodox tradition are saying it must be wine. It must be the mixed cup of water and wine together. Good. So, that I mean, that's really rich. That's a lot of information. But I, I, I hope that that just starts to show people that we're starting to move away from a mere, you know, meal uh you know all these people gather together and 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 having and sharing all types of food to the point where you know we've known all along that there are two specific uh elements here or three that that really stand out and and are set apart and have this uh this special function within this this ritual um and slowly what we'll see as we go through and what we'll get there eventually is that you see the complete dying out of the of the agape altogether. Um, yeah, the agape. What we're going what we're going to see in the third century, in fact, are church fathers. Um, uh, so the agape is going to continue, of course, and it continues all the way. I think we have examples of it into the sixth century. But what mm-hmm. what ends up happening is that church fathers begin to obviously um, promote uh, the morning Eucharist as the event. Um, and the symposium banquet uh, becomes more of a charitable banquet than anything else, right? And and less sacramental. 